Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Luca Martini about the history of pseudo-wires. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, hello, Luca. It's been a long, long time since I've seen you, and I understand that you are snowed in in Colorado and it is impossible to get out. <laughs> yes, today is a, is a, a famous snowstorm. Uh, we'll see what happens, it's just started. So, um, well- It's, it's not gonna you. be as famous as the inventor of pseudo wires, so we'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, I would just uh, like to maybe give you a little bit of background. You have to kind of set yourself in the time when this was actually thought out and invented, which is, you know, 1998, 1999, um, we, we actually wrote the original draft in a bookstore <laughs> in the evening, <laughs> in uh, the end of 1999, I believe, or October 99, wow. or something like that. Um, and um, in those days, uh, the network looked much, much different. Uh, we were talking about backbone core links of uh, 622 megabits, uh, ATM OC12s. Uh, they were, um, uh, you know, j just being deployed. We just were deploying OC12s because the original was OC3s, ATM. At the time we looked at this and, and Ethernet was emerging. We, we started, we had gigabit Ethernet and uh, coming out and we, we, uh, we started looking at this and said, well, there has to be an easier way than frame relay links and ATM PVCs <laughs> and, uh, you know, frame relay PVCs as well, ATM SVCs and, and so forth. And so uh, the idea was with MPLS was, was uh, actually uh, just started. There was no working group in the ITF for MPLS. There was, uh, they were talking about creating an area. That was actually a little bit even later in 2000. They were talking about creating an area for the sub IP area, if you remember, <laughs> for yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we, we we looked at this and said, okay, we have these labels, and and it's uh, very easy to assign any meaning you want to a label. Uh, because after all, the meaning was uh, was done in the control plane, and label was just a fixed encapsulation. And a lot of hardware could, you know, take a whatever packet it was and put the label on it. And so, with that in mind, we said, okay, well, let's see what we can do about creating a, a virtual circuit. Initially, we actually called it virtual circuit, but then uh, we, when we met with a lot of people in the ITF, we, we, we decided that we had to create a new uh, term for this because it wasn't quite a virtual circuit. And uh, so we, we, we uh, invented the term cellular wire because it wasn't quite a wire, but it was like a wire. And um, so, so the, the whole standard started, uh, I think the first publication was like in the early 2000, March 2000 or something like that. Uh, and uh, at the time I used to, I worked for Level 3 Communication, which was a very large startup, which was going to build, dig all the US and the rest of the world, uh, put fiber in the ground and build the internet basically. And today, you know, it has become the internet. 
but um, so so we were looking to, to do uh, over services, which was easier and and make some of the uh, over the top transit the transit services easier than doing ATM or or uh, frame relay. We just did not want to go to the legacy into the legacy services of creating ATM circuits and frame relay circuits and so forth. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about that because circuit switching is something a lot of people aren't familiar with now. <laughs> as, geeky as our audience is, they probably don't even know what we're talking about. We say a circuit switch circuit or whatever, a, a circuit switch to bring up and everything. So we, this is the time when people are transitioning, right? I mean, the, the packet world is taking off and the circuit world is, is basically being over the top by um, packet switching. So, what were the advantages of people trying to get to in a circuit switch? I mean, why would you want a circuit switch network in the first place? Or what was the point of this? Um, just to drive a little bit of the conversation about trying to get to a pseudo wire, what was the point behind the wire, basically? So the uh, industry and a lot of uh, private businesses used uh, classical T1s, DS3 uh, lines, uh, which were TDM uh, circuits, hard, you know, hardwired circuits uh, to... Uh, communicate between different uh, locations. And, and uh, th- then ATM came along and, and uh, people started using ATM, but they realized there was no real, no real ATM application ever came, uh, came uh, along to use the no ATM. Killer, no killer app. Exactly. It was no killer app. And so what happens then people started putting, uh, create a frame relay. A frame relay was basically running over ATM. So the ATM switches would put, <laughs> split the, the frame or the packet, the frame relay frame into little cells and then send them along and recompose on the other side. Um, it, it, all of this was very expensive. Uh, the, the, the amount of hardware needed to do all of this and uh, was very expensive. And, and the whole point behind ATM cell was, was the delay and the fact that you could, because you had fixed length packets, you could do similar like a TDM, like uh, guaranteed delay, right? Right. Um, Frame frame was even painful because you had to manually configure your DELCs or until you got to the point where you could auto-discover the DELCs. And even if you could auto-discover the DELCs, you still had to manually assign a DELC to a sub-interface with an IP address. So there was the equipment, it was expensive. The configuration on the provider side was horrendous because you got to keep up with all the DELCs and who goes where right. on the intermediate circuits. And then even on the customer end, you're sitting there manually mapping garbage and it's like, this is crazy. It's just insane. Yeah. I'm doing all this work. Exactly. It, it was a... Uh, yeah, we, we there was, a, I think, the, the expensive part from the provider side was really the fact that we had to maintain all these circuits uh, and on this equipment that was specialized and sold by companies that no longer exist, like Nortel. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so we, we, um, we, we're looking at doing something a little simpler and easier. And uh, the, the first thing I had to do, because I was a service provider, worked for a service provider at the time, my goal was to, uh, to create a protocol and a system that was very easy to implement and kept the cost down. And for that point, some of the decisions that were made on the encapsulations and, and uh, you know, all of the cell wires, especially Ethernet, ATM, and frame relay, were not necessarily the best 
you know, uh, possible uh, encapsulation or design. It was more like what the hardware could do at that time. So if you ever ask why, you know, certain bits are in certain places, well, don't think too, too much about it. It's probably that some ASIC could not really swap the bits or couldn't put them in a different way. And that's why we, we uh, the, one the reason why this protocol took off very uh, quickly and, and was the fact that it was really easy for people to implement this in different routers. I think within a, a couple of years, we had 11 independent implementations of the so-called Martini draft uh, at the time, um, a set of wires. And, um, they all interoperated, uh, in a lab in, in Washington, uh, in, uh, uh, I can't remember, it was uh, Bijan Jabari, I think, uh, was, was actually facilitating the, the interoperative, uh, interoperating lab. And um, the, uh, so, so that was partly how, why this uh, you know, grew and, and got so successful so quickly. Uh, and then the, their party was it was simple. People understood, you know, a circuit at a time, right? They understood ATM, they understood frame relay, they understood the circuit very easily. So I didn't want to create uh, things like a VPLS, which came up late, a little bit later, a few years later, which w w meant we have to go sell a new concept to the customer as, as, as well as a new service. I just wanted to, to just say, well, guys, you remember your frame relay circuits and DLCs? Well, now you can get a set of wire. It's just a VLAN. It goes from this point to that point. It's easy, uh, easy to uh, administer. Each router will have a sub-interface with a, a VLAN on, on each, for each location. And, you know, it's, it's life as usual, right? So this uh, was a layer two service, right? That you were this was a layer two service. So we had uh, the set of wires would be, were able to carry frame uh, DLCs if you wanted to do that. They were able to carry ATM. Uh, they were able to carry uh, Ethernet uh, VLANs or Ethernet frames. And uh, we also had uh, layer two circuit emulation. So you could actually do a T1. Uh, in those days, that was used by a lot of people to uh, basically create uh, links between PBXs. Uh, so they would put a, a T1 emulated over, over a set of wire over PBX. And it was very popular outside the US. I don't think it never got very popular inside the US, but in the rest of the world. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so um, we, we were able to create, you know, these point-to-point -point circuits. And the other part that, that was very critical is because, because I was a service provider, we need to make this easy to operate in the sense that we, we, we all the experience we had with trouble with uh, ATM, VPI, VCI not matching or Fremulate DLC not matching before, you know, people had ILMI enabled and so forth, interface management protocol enabled. Um, we, we, we figure out all the operational problems we had were a big barrier to, to any kind of uh, service or, or technology or, or protocol to be deployed. For that reason, I invented those uh, interface parameters that were basically uh, properties of the interface on each end of the set of wire, which would be exchanged by the router, and that would uh, make sure that things were configured properly on both sides the cell wire would not be set to active unless uh, everything was configured correctly. And this is to prevent operational issues. And in fact, in one particular implementation, I also asked uh, people to uh, 
print out a list in a management interface for a particular uh, network device or router uh, to print out any kind of unknown VLANs that were not configured but were seen on that interface. And that was one of the most useful features because every time a customer would come up and hook up a, an internet port, they uh, were, um, you know, if they were misconfigured the VLAN, says, oh, I set VLAN 100, but instead they were doing VLAN 1. Uh, they, they, this feature will allow a, a, an engineer to look and say, no, 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 you, you got to misconfigure. This is what you need to do. And, and that contributed to, to, make, to make it easier to deploy and a quicker deployment. Oh, that's cool. So this is kind of, um, shall we say, early days neighbor discovery, Indian IPv6 type of thing. Was yes. this ex- did this exist in any other protocols at the time, or is this something like totally new? Um, they, they were they were link management protocols. Uh, they, they were ATM, uh, and then there was ILMI. There were there were preliminary protocols as well. So they were link management protocols, uh, but they were a lot more complex. Uh, and and I was I was trying to do something fairly simple uh, to again to make it easier to implement, and and you know the the encapsulation on on the setwise was was pretty easy. I think the scalability was was really uh, a, a gift from MPLS because it was very easy to scale because of of the uh, local local property of labels. Uh, you you had you know the million labels and then you can but they were local to one particular box so it was very easy to scale set of wires and uh, I was impressed because even uh, you know twenty years later they never really run out of labels anywhere because <laughs> okay? so people just start creating what they call the uh, you know uh, special I can't remember they they used to have labels that. Um, are localized to a certain area or of the router and things like that, but um, they never really run out. So the observed wire were, were created with you know to scale, to be simple, and and uh, to be easy to uh, understand and deploy. And and so then then we we also envisioned the fact that we could build over things based on these set of wires, and that's how VPLS came up a little bit later. So it's interesting because we often hear how slow the IETF is, stuff like that. And I know this is in the late 90s. So <laughs> this is before many of the vendor wars started at the IETF and stuff, I think. But it's interesting, I think, because two things you're saying here probably drove this um, a great deal faster than other standards are driven. First, it came out of a provider. So there was a lot of vendors vying for that that uh, that business of getting the providers to jump on this and so therefore it was given from a provider's perspective and second of all the simplicity you're talking about i think we often forget today how important simplicity is in at least in the initial stages like adding vpls later well i mean that added complexity but that was after that people had already implemented it and deployed it and seen how simple it was to do the base stuff right and and I think that's really important. You start with simple stuff and let it grow. I think I think Paul Manafer said something about this as well, or Paul Michael, sorry, Paul Michael Petra said something about this as well. So yeah, I'm, you know, it's interesting that you uh, mentioned the the uh, vendor wars because I think this might have been the first vendor war that that happened uh, at the time in uh, nineteen in two thousand. Um, Nortel. Uh, saw this as a big threat to their ATM and uh, frame relay businesses. And uh, so they mounted a, an incredible fight in the ATF against uh, the, the, the technology to sabotage it and, and uh, 
you know, uh, and kill it. And uh, this went on for about a year and they slowed down things. But at the end of the day, there was like, you know, pretty much everybody allied against them. And I remember <laughs> a lot of argument about this. And, and you can see uh, how uh, the fact they didn't embrace the change and, and the new technology uh, did not make for a very long, long life lived company. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, even over companies that eventually were still fighting it, like Alcatel, Alcatel at the time, uh, decided to join the the, uh, the technology and, and the industry, and and you know they made a lot of money out of it, and, and uh, you know were very profitable at that. So, so how did you get or convince the major vendors to implement? Uh, so the fact that it was easy, the implementation in hardware wasn't a problem. A lot of the hardware already uh, did support it. They, uh, that was the first advantage. They, they, since I was a service provider and I, I, uh, we, we, we had a lot of money and a, and a big network being built, that was also easier to actually uh, convince vendors to implement it. And then they, uh, in the IETF, we had a lot of service provider uh, working on this with me. It wasn't just me, there was like, you know, most of the major providers in the world at that time were behind it. So uh, that helped the vendor community seeing, you know, a uh, business uh, that was possible in this in this technology. And uh, once a few implemented it and it started being deployed, uh, you know, it just took off. <laughs> and uh, even if it were people fighting it, it was it was it was killing a business that was mainly owned by a couple of companies. There were not a lot of ATM relay companies, right? So so there were a lot of new players that were willing to to uh, risk an investment in this area to to go after the the business, the major business, because at the time. Most uh, uh, companies uh, used frame relay links to, for their connectivity between offices. Interesting, yeah. So, yeah. So I think I think that's right. I mean, I think the thing is, is that you had you had the providers on your side. Ultimately, is where it comes down to. That's kind of my. Yeah, it was it was simple to implement, and and uh, the providers were on my side, and I, I was working with uh, you know even the vendors saying okay secretly we went and interoperated in my lab and <laughs> say guys come here don't <laughs> tell anybody but we'll make it work. <laughs> so, oh boy! When they went to official in, in, you know implementation interoperability tests, some companies magically worked. They nobody knew how, <laughs> they just worked right. Oh wow! Yeah, that's kind of cool that it, that you went in the background and and made it work. That's actually kind of neat that 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 happened. So, yeah. So tell me about the IETF process a little bit beyond that. I mean, was there anything specific? I mean, I know there was the subgroup that was considered and stuff like that. Did it end up in its own? It did end up in its own working group, or it didn't? I don't remember if it. Yes, did. it did. Uh, so initially, so the first problem, the first delay in ITF was was the fact that they were they trying to decide they were to to create a new area. They called it a sub IP area. And they wanted to put MPLS in that area because MPLS was not exactly uh, fully standardized at that time. They wanted to put MPLS there. They wanted to put LDP. They wanted to put set of wires and a few other things, right? And so it took a while to create a new area. There was a lot of arguing there. And then 
Eventually they did, and they created the uh, PWA free pseudo wire edge to edge emulation. It was it was called, uh, and that working group. I mean, I I think it, I don't know if it's still going. It probably closed by now, but um, it, it lasted <laughs> a long time, maybe fifteen years. I was uh, the chair of it for for a, a small amount of uh, of time, but then I realized that I could actually progress the technology and help a lot more if I wasn't the chair and if I was just you know uh, more contributing to the to the documents uh, than then running the the, uh, the working group and so so I, I uh, stopped I quit pretty early and then there were several you know other people um, you know uh, they were uh, chairing it in fact uh, Stuart Bryant which which was one of the the uh, people that argued with me the most in the beginning about uh, some uh, location of bits I can't remember why there was some kind of issue with uh, bits in the header and uh, they uh, he became, we became good friends and then he became the chair for the many, many years. And, uh, until uh, pretty much until it, it got shut down, which I'm not sure if that even is the case or not. I don't, I know they don't meet anymore, but I haven't been in ATF in a while now. So. Yeah. It eventually was replaced, I think by NVO3, which is network virtualization overlays. Right. Um, it, it was, it, it came something before NVO3. It went from PW3 to, there was another one. I can't remember the name now. And right. then, right. And then it became NVO3, which is also doing um, Geneve and um, 5G data center connect and VXLAN and other odds and ends, which I guess fall under the same type of concept as pseudo wires, but not quite the same because they're not really doing circuit emulation, are they? They're doing more um, just overlay type stuff, which right. is a slightly different world. I mean, it is... In the, uh, um, pseudo wires are an overlay. Now we wouldn't have called them an overlay in that day. We would have called them tunnels, um, but we would call them overlays now. And so it's the similar type of stuff. But the but the but the unique thing is the circuit emulation that makes it look like it's a frame relay circuit with Delsies or something like that. Right. There was a lot of discussion in, initially about. Uh, you know, why is this like a wire? Is this almost a wire? Are the properties the same? And uh, there was a lot of discussion also about keeping the underlying network uh, separate, completely disjoint from the emulation, which I think was uh, a very uh, clever decision because it, it contributed to the success of the set of wires, which, you know, could run over IP, they could run over MPLS and, and, and so forth, right? And later on, um, there were deployments of a lot of these uh, encapsulations over IP. Uh, they, so, so I think they, they, there was a, a long uh, discussion uh, in ATF that we had to have because uh, a lot of people wanted to, to um, tie some of the overlay to the underlay, as you can see in a lot of the products today. And, and at that time, we, we thought it, was, it would be better to keep them separate so that if the underlay were to change and become something completely different, I don't know, like IPv6 or something, <laughs> then uh, we wouldn't have to rebuild the protocols on top. And it was more like a longevity and, and a, a simplicity part. And uh, it, you know, I think after we, a lot of the core initial people that design MPLS left the ITF, we started seeing uh, things drift and uh, kind of these lines be blurred a little bit. And I'm not sure if I agree too much with that. I, 
Uh, you know, like for example, the labels um, they call they they have a special meanings. Uh, labels should never have a special meanings, but uh, a lot of the a lot of things change uh, since since those days, and, and the technology has evolved. Yeah, well, we tend to forget Linsky's law of substitution, right? Yeah. Anything underneath should be substitutable with anything else underneath, as long as it has the same opaque API. It should just act the same. And right. we do a lot of layering violations. I mean, people, I always say this, and people get mad at me for saying it. You know, it's not really Nat's fault that we do we embed IP addresses inside of packets. If we, if we didn't do that, right. Nat probably wouldn't be such a huge deal. It's just that we have this bad tendency of embedding IP addresses and things that we really shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing that. That's actually a layering violation. And we don't, we don't really pay attention to that. Um, it's convenient, right? It's like right. treating the IP address as a locator on the device. It's not, I mean, you see it on cop shows, right? Well, I trace the IP address back and it's registered to, it's registered to Miami, Florida. And right. They're in Colorado committing some crime and you're like beating your head against a wall. That's not the way IP addresses work. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and <laughs> with layer violations, I think it's just people trying to take a shortcut for a specific problem without thinking, you know, of the overall architecture. I think sometimes, uh, you know, the ITF is, is a amazing organization because the discussions and there, there are a lot of people there that still want to make it work and, and, and get it deployed. And, and that causes, uh, you know, a consensus whether it's forced or not. It's not always the best protocol, but it's always the one that works. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have, I've seen, uh, you know, the process, uh, that go on for many protocols in many years. And yes, it's not as fast as we would want, but compared to other organization, uh, like when we had to do set of wires in the ITU, uh, there was a lot more difficult. There was no innovation. It was very difficult to, to do over things. The only reason the ITU ever ratified all the standards for set of wires was because the, the, it was done in the ITF and they had no choice. And, and there were a lot of people that did a lot of work, uh, specifically from, from ICATEL, uh, and to, to go in the, in the ITU and make sure it was the same thing because they could have created something slightly different and then, uh, you know, cause a problem and a churn in the market. Uh, because a lot of countries at country level, they, they just follow ITU standards because they don't really have technical people or, or they can't really evaluate their own uh, technology, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's very common. I think it also happens the other way around, right? Like the t-shirts in the, in the uh, ITF that said IS minus IS equals zero. So we're going to invent our own protocol because, because we can, because we want to, I don't know. I mean, and there were reasons, but you look back today and you're like, I don't know. Was it? Was it really worth saving the TLV headers? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh, you know the whole ISIS versus uh, OSPF uh, <laughs> fight at that time, and and then we had RSVP uh, T uh, versus RSVP set of wire versus LDP set of wires. Uh, we yeah. you know we had uh, those were some of the vendor uh, created uh, you know arguments where there really was no argument. You could do it one way or the other, but you had to be. 
uh, you know, different. The recipes otherwise were, were more of a really shortcut. Let me get it out the door tomorrow morning. And, you know, I don't care if, if there's a operational issues, you know, as long as you configure everything correctly and the world is perfect, then it'll work. Right. <laughs> but, uh, so, so that, that's some of the things that, that, that I have built into the, uh, the set of wire control plane. So remember, even if set of wires, we had two different layers. Okay, so one layer was the encapsulation, and that was common for everywhere. And then we, we start, we came up with LDP-based cell wires control plane first, but we also had RSVP, uh, you know, control plane, we had IP, we had different control planes that could be substituted whatever you're trying to do with this, right? And, and, uh, and, and some of that came out, there was, you know, arguing and, and so forth about control plane issues and so forth. But at the end of the day, we were able to use the layering argument to say, well, we're going to do a, an end-to-end control plane with using LDP. And if you want any other features like RSVPT or reservations or, or any kind of uh, quality of service, that's all a problem on the underlying PSTN, we call the public. Uh, uh, public switch. Public telephone switch network or something like that. PSN, yes, PSN, public switch network or something like that. So um, it's all big properties of the underlying network. And and, uh, and so we could use any kind of of, uh, technology we want. In fact, you know, things like segment routing weren't even invented at that time. But you could run a set of wire over segment routing today because it's just, again, a different layer. So that's some of the, the, the uh, you know, the nice the beauty of, of having layers and the technologies defined like this. And that's why they actually last a long time. Right. I mean, that's the point behind layering, right? You don't know what the feature is going to bring. So if you go back to, Lins- uh, to Lisky's principle, if I can have things that are replaceable and layered, then I can support, I can use a single concept or construction over multiple in multiple situations rather than inventing a new one every time somebody else comes up with something different. It's like... We keep reinventing the wheel and it'd be so much simpler if we just invented the wheel once and yes. it with a flexible axle connector so you can connect it to lots of different things, you know, kind of a thing. And we don't tend to do that very well, do we? <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. Well, I think we learned. <laughs> yeah, maybe, well, maybe we didn't. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. So, so you said something about where bits were in hardware support. So I'm very curious. How did you know? Because I know a lot of operators today would be completely lost in the hardware world. I mean, we're not talking now. Back in those days, you know, Jay Bash would call the TAC and and give you the decode from iOS crashes, and it was kind of unnerving to have people like that on the other end of the phone. But how did you? dive into and understand the hardware side well enough to understand what those limitations might be? Well, I, I had a lot of friends uh, that, that worked in, in different vendors and even, uh, you know, vendors that made chipsets. And there's a, a specific, you know, the, every router works pretty much the same way even today. They, they extract a piece of the header of the packet and uh, they then do some kind of lookup operation on that header, and then they do some kind of, uh, you know, insert or copy operation and put it out there, the other end, the different interface. So the, 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 the problem here was when you receive a Fermilay packet, for example, or, uh, or let's say, yeah, Fermilay is a good example. The, the first b- few bytes of the Fermilay uh, packet were 
actually available to look at and, and do things with. So that, then what we needed to do is, well, all we need to do is insert, you know, this, this label uh, and, and uh, we can, or a couple of labels usually, and then we can take the packet and put it back out on the wire. Now, the problem was there were certain bits in the, uh, in the headers that they were used as service delimiters. So the Fermilay DLCI was, uh, you know, one particular example. The, the Ethernet VLAN is another example. The ATM VPI VCI is another example. And so those bits uh, were available if it were fairly early in the header. And so sometimes we would uh, take those bits and, uh, you know, look the map if it were available and, and decide which set of wire the particular packet had to go down uh, on, right? And and so that, uh, and then sometimes we had to actually take the bits like the second and beckoned because of the spec uh, forward uh, uh, congestion notification and backward congestion notification. I think that's what it translates to. Um, we had to take those bits and, and uh, actually map it to some of the uh, set of wire, uh, what control ward that we called it. Um, and then, and, and so how we did this was, was very much dictated by how the hardware would, was able to extract the bits or handle the packets. And, and uh, remember in these days, those days the hardware was not programmable, it's very limited. Uh, and so it, it was, um, some things we could do, some things we couldn't. A lot of people, the control world, for example, was a big argument that went on for years afterwards. And I had to, to uh, really fight to keep it an optional because there was a lot of hardware in the beginning that couldn't put in a control world. They couldn't add this extra, uh, you know, 32 bits to, to uh, put different uh, information in. And, and uh, a lot of people wanted this control world and the reason they wanted it is to, to eliminate the vendors who had the hardware that couldn't put it in. Yeah, so that's as, right. yeah. yeah. As a service provider, you know, I, this is not what I want. I want the most amount of choice of vendors and the most cheap, the cheapest hardware, if you, you know. Yeah, right, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting because I, I think that, you know, we, we don't even think about things like, what you were talking about there about the, the ordering in which the switch takes place, like the order in which you read the packet header in doing the switch actually comes, comes out to be important. And we don't think about that as being important, but it is. It does make a difference in the speed at which you can switch things. And I think this is where MPLS in general was, was kind of brilliant at the time, was that you just thinking about IPv6, one thing we don't think about with V6 is V6 headers are big. They're hard to switch in hardware. I mean, yes. those in those days, we just couldn't have switched V6 headers in hardware. That just wouldn't have happened. So MPLS at the time was a really brilliant idea to cut way back on the amount of processing power it took to do. Yeah. Um, and then pseudo wires on top to emulate the Delsies. Oh, my goodness. Frame relay was my nightmare in <laughs> for a long time. Holy mackerel! <laughs> I so dislike. Well, you know, the, 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 the other thing that helped a lot is that uh, all of the uh, ATM-based uh, services, Fremily-based services, they, they were all based on a uh, usually in general a, an NMS network management system that was uh, based on the GUI, and and uh, it was very difficult for somebody to automate that. 
they were the, these are the early days of that world automation. While set of wires were just based, based on end-to-end -end only end uh, device uh, configuration, which is routers. And, you know, internet took off very easily. And then nobody ever had a centralized NMS to manage all the routers. It was always each individual routers on its own. And then you just configured it and you create scripts to configure them and so forth. And set of wires were also that way, which was the, the first time, uh, you know, a kind of circuit switch technology was uh, implemented in, in that fashion, right? With, with just end-to-end -end configuration. And so that, that helped a lot, actually. Yeah, so in terms of pseudo-wires, one of the interesting things about circuits is, is that as long as you make admission control, you don't drop packets. That's, that's the general concept behind a, a circuit switch network, which is why you can do non-blocking in a circuit switch network. And people talk about non-blocking IP packet networks, and that's total nonsense. There's no such thing as a non-blocking IP-based network. Sorry, no. <laughs> IP drops packets. It's not non-blocking um, and you don't have entrance. You don't have that type of control on the entrance side of the network to prevent the network itself from being overflowed um, so that you end up dropping packets. Right. This kind of raises a question when you talk about pseudo wires, um, the people running ATM and running frame relay and T1s weren't used to the, the, the probabilistic packet drop. Was that an issue in rolling? Uh, you have to go back to history here, right? Remember, this is 99, 2000. It, it, it is the, the, the sunset of ATM uh, at that point. And uh, although, you know, 3G was actually designed in that time, and, and it looks like, uh, from what I heard, nobody who with packet experience went to the standards <laughs> meetings, and so they put ATM in 3G, <laughs> which is very unfortunate. But it, it also uh, made ATM zero wires live a long life afterwards because of, uh, you know, people trying to backhaul uh, 3G traffic. The word pseudo in pseudo wires came out came about for the exact reason you're mentioning, because it wasn't exactly a wire, it wasn't exactly a virtual circuit. So they didn't want to call it a virtual circuit because they would they would we wouldn't want to call it that because it wasn't exactly virtual circuit. You could have packet loss. Like if you were to send an ATM uh, VC through a set of wire, it becomes an ATM set of wire, you could possibly lose cells or lose, you know, bundles of cells uh, in the middle. Now, reality was that in those days, because of sunsetting of ATM and, and the rise of IP, most traffic was just IP. That's all there was. So when you try and put IP on top of something that's already, you know, or something that's a packet network, it works because IP can handle packet loss and blocking and so forth, right? So, so there was never an issue with, with this uh, emulation not being perfect okay. because the main application was IP and IP worked just fine over set of wires, it worked over Ethernet set of wires, worked over frame rate set of wires. So all the, the folks that they thought that somebody was going to put, you know, TDM voice over an ATM circuit that runs over a set of wire, uh, you know, weren't quite thinking the right time frame. But this time everything was IP, everything was packet, so it was fine. Okay, cool. Was voice over IP out at this time? This is too early yes. for voice. It was, okay, it was. Okay. Voice was our IP was out at this time, and we had massive uh, deployments in level three of voice over IP uh -huh. over set of wires, over Ethernet set of wires. There were people buying overlays of Ethernet set of wires. And by that time, you know, we were in the gigabit Ethernet backbone, and then we, we quickly went to like 10 gigabit Ethernet. And 
um, the, the, uh, the speed of the backbone was so large compared to the speed of the voice, uh, which, you know, an emulated circuit, G729 is like eight kilobits, things like that, that all the issues with jitter and delay and that were raised by voice people weren't really a problem uh, anymore. Because, you know, we're now running set of wires of a, of a T1, you know, 1.5 megabit backbone, we're trying to run an eight kilobit stream through it. We're running it on a 10 gigabit backbone. And so that, that uh, really uh, helps. So there was never really any issues of running a voice or, or anything like that. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, after all, QoS just means you're too cheap to put in more bandwidth. <laughs> <laughs> That's not absolutely true, but it's often a, a good rule of thumb. If you're pushing in eight, if you're pushing in eight Qs of QoS, maybe you just need to upgrade the bandwidth and not worry about it. <laughs> well, yeah, QoS is, is is not a solution to get more bandwidth. It's a yeah. stopwatch measure in case you have a problem somewhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so now that you look back, what would you do different about pseudowires? <laughs> Oh, what, what an adventure uh, has been for, for the past 20 years. Uh, what do I do different? Um, I think I would have handled the original ITF uh, working group uh, and uh, ARIA a little bit different. I could have made it a little faster if I were to do something different. Because I, I figured that, you know, if you look at the first public official standard the, the document was like three years later and actually everybody was you know was talking about it so so the standard happened de facto before uh you know it really was standardized by the atf so i would have liked to have done that a little faster um the one thing i would like to to, to make sure is that people should not reinvent the wheel <laughs> we uh it's very i find it very unfortunate that uh as as a lot of people uh drift off to different technology like i don't work in in this i mean in the networking I still work in networking, but not in these areas anymore. Uh, that, that people come along and, and uh, think they invent something new, and it's really something that was not well thought out, and we decided against it for some reason. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I feel uh, that sometimes uh, people make decisions these days because they don't have the, the history of what happened, and then they, they fall back into the same mistakes that we did with uh, version one, for example, <laughs> you know, protocols that, that uh, had lots of limitations, uh, like uh, Apple Talk or IPX, if you remember those things, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, Apple Talk and IPX, I remember them both very well. Yeah. So it's interesting that you say faster because a lot of people think the pseudo wires went really, really fast in the ITF. Like it was a success in that, in that sense um, compared to many other protocols. It was fast. Uh, well, no, okay, let me put it this way. I was able to create a, a lot of consensus within vendors and within uh, service providers very quickly, okay? Because of the problems I said, it was simple, it was easy to understand and so forth. However, the ITF itself didn't, did not standardize this. They should have standardized this in 2000 within you know, eight months or something. Instead, they, it took them three years. So the, the ITF process wasn't working very quickly. Although you know, the, the whole community was in agreement, but the ITF process was, was not working very quickly. There was a lot of arguing and a lot of delays and so forth, right? 
Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at modern standards and they take forever. It feels like, you know, EVPN and BGP went through, I don't know, however many renditions of the draft before it finally, the most recent version came out. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to take forever nowadays. And I think part of that is just because people are different now. It's more vendor driven than it is, um, Provider-driven, customer-driven, it feels like to me. And I fuss about this all the time. Even though I still work for a vendor or I'm back to working for a vendor or whatever you want to say, I'm always like, okay. if you have any interest in getting involved in the ITF and you're a, you're a network operator, please get involved in the, in the ITF as a network operator. I mean, you may feel like you're lost, but there yes. are people out there who will help you get, get unlost and you should do it. Yeah, there's a lot of friendly people that will help you, uh, guide you through the process and the, the pitfalls and, and so forth. And, and you know, the, the thing that uh, worries me the most right now with the, this, this particular direction is the fact that the operational part of the, uh, you know, deploying a service is not necessarily well thought out. Vendors don't care about that. They care about getting the thing, you know, into the into the market and being different from everybody else because they can, you know, use marketing tools to, to promote their particular differences better. But they don't necessarily think, and how would you operate this? How, you know, a service provider has to have a, a, a business sense and, and make money out of the service. And if a service is too complex or too difficult to operate or too unstable, it doesn't really work. And, and that's where, why we really need a lot more service providers in ITF to drive, you know, the sense of operational complexity <laughs> You know, it should be low. Uh, you know, the fact that we need to operate these networks and these protocols and not just, you know, create the protocol and, and not think about these things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've pretty much covered the topic and um, I think we're cool here. I think, uh, you know, good conversation. Thanks for coming on, Luca. So, Luca, I assume you don't even do network. Well, you do, you're not doing networking stuff now, right? Uh, I well, <laughs> I work with network automation. Okay, uh, network automation. I, I, okay. I've done a lot of different things throughout my career, from building routers to to uh, you know doing strategy and all different things. And right now, I I'm trying to solve the problem. I still think that the networks are becoming commodity, but they have not really the management part of it has not become a commodity, and it's still a difficult problem. And so, there's a big area for innovation in, in, in that. Interesting. In that. Yeah. So, so my argument there is I think the hardware is becoming a commodity quickly, but I think that the software side is still not truly a commodity. I'm not sure it ever will truly be. And I think the management part is part of that software. But I mean, I think that, that you know, part of the problem we have right now is we sell networks as appliances. So we buy the software and the hardware together and... That mixes. That's, that's changing though, very rapidly. You can buy, uh, as you can see, you know, from someone on this call, that you can buy software separate from hardware and put it together, and it works pretty well. And uh, in fact, uh, it's very soon uh, you'll buy any kind of vendor software and any kind of hardware, uh, you know, uh, hardware as well. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's, I mean, there are vendors going in that direction as well. I mean, I know Cumulus is on the forefront there, but Juniper's in there too, doing stuff in that space, and people don't know about it. But as well. yeah, it's it's there. I know the bigger ships are taking longer to turn, and maybe they won't they won't make the turn. But you know, it's it's business. It's the way it is. So that's cool. Yeah. All right. So can anybody find you, Luca, on your blog? I assume, but you, if you're working on network automation, you must have a company you're working with. You can point out their website if you want to. And 
Um, no, well, <laughs> uh, well, right now I, I work for uh, Charter Communication, which is uh, okay. the second largest uh, MSO cable MSO in, in the U.S. So we can find you at Charter. Yes. And if people's internet connection goes down from Charter, they can call you, okay? <laughs> no, I don't think so, okay. Uh, all right. So, Donald, you're on Twitter at me, not you, Sharp, right? Yep. You can find me there. Any place else? No, not blogging? No, it's against the rules. That doesn't, that doesn't make little programs go written faster. Uh, I see, I see. And you can find Donald on GitHub, too. <laughs> If you're really interested, and me, I'm Russ White. I'm at uh, the only place you can find me is pretty much uh, on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, okay, cool, good. Yeah, can find you on LinkedIn. That's good. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I'm not on Facebook, and I'm rarely ever on Twitter. But you can always find me at the <laughs> Collective, and um, you can find me at Rule11.tech. So thanks, Luca, for coming out and hanging Thank out you. with us and talking about this. <laughs>